Well, good morning, church. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of Galatians. I realize we've been calling this a series that we're calling the gospel for real life. We might as well call it an exposition through the second half of Galatians, but we didn't do that. So, Galatians chapter 5. Over the last several months, we as a church have been considering the gospel. It's a series that in some ways reminds me a little bit of spring training in baseball. I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I know that every year the greatest baseball players in the world, all the professionals, they, uh, they attend spring training where they spend perhaps even hundreds of hours working on the fundamentals, right? The fundamentals of baseball. And if you think about it, it's really something of a spectacle. You, you can go and you can see professionals performing the exact same drills that the little leaguers, the minor league little leaguers, would be performing. And the reason for that is, well, you never outgrow the fundamentals. And that's how it is with the gospel. You never outgrow or completely master the fundamentals of the gospel. And if you want to be a Christian that is fundamentally sound and that is, has a good foundation and is ready for a rich and fruitful and vibrant life, then you need a rich understanding of the gospel. So we've been talking in, in recent weeks, I think and I hope really quite practically, about the gospel. And really we've been asking, what is it? And how does it work for our daily lives? How does it really fit into our life? One of the questions that we've been trying to think about together is, what does it mean for the gospel to be the one central defining reality of our life? What does it look like for the gospel to be the center, the middle? So many so-called Christians, I fear, have bought into the lie that you can just take some Jesus and that you can have some of the benefits of the gospel and just add Christ as some part of your life, as if he was a supplement, an add-on, some component piece. Like you can just add him to the other stuff in your life. Well, the Bible makes it clear that that's not an option. You, can, you, can't, you can't do that. Jesus said that if you want to follow him, that in order to be his disciple, you must follow him. That means you have to stop living for yourself, to stop following your own way, and to submit to his plan for your life. And so in doing that, Jesus and his teaching, his gospel, become the new central reality of our lives. Jesus can't just be another planet in your solar system. He can't be just another planet that orbits around you, the sinner. He must become the sun in your life. And everything else in our lives must fall into orbit and into order around Him and His gospel. We've seen that the gospel is more than just good advice. Good advice. The gospel is not just some good advice. It's not just some intellectual ideas. It's not just a set of historical facts that you buy into. The gospel is much more than that. It is Good news, good news that man can be made right with God 
through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And we see that part of that work, part of the work that Christ has accomplished is that he actually recreates people, right? That's what it means when we are reborn. We are reestablished in our humanity. Humanity as God really intended it. We're given a new identity. We're given our uh, sense of righteousness. God establishes for us in Jesus our deepest needs and our deepest longings are met in Him. Our identity and our righteousness established once for all for good in the person of Jesus. And so when that happens, what happens is that the gospel actually frees us. It frees us. Frees us from the, the enslaving need that we feel to make a name for ourselves. We don't have to prove our goodness anymore. We don't have to measure up, not up to God, not up to each other. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't need to worry about working anymore to, to measuring up or accomplishing enough. Because in the gospel, we get a new identity. We get to unite with Jesus and share in all of the benefits and all of the blessings and all that he has accomplished and all that he deserves. We are united in Christ in the gospel. So what that means is that we who were once enslaved to ourselves, enslaved to the, enslaved to the lusts and the passions and the desires of our own heart, hearts that only beated for ourselves, we're now freed. Freed in Christ. The gospel brings total freedom. And it's wonderful news that I can proclaim today. But there are some ways that this freedom can malfunction. Ways that it can go bad. It's in fact so much freedom that there's a sense of where we don't really know how to handle it. It's too much for us. I'm reminded of a character by the name of Brooks in the movie Shawshank Redemption. Brooks was an elderly inmate who was spending a 50-year sentence in prison when at the age of 72, he was finally released. And when Brooks left the prison walls, he found that the world and the society that he entered into was very different than the society that he had left. The world outside the walls was very different than the world that he had come to know behind prison walls. And Brooks was totally unable to adjust to this change. He missed being in prison. He was so used to being in prison that he wrote a letter back to his prison buddies and he even half-joked about committing another crime just so that he could go home, back, back to prison. Then a few weeks later, his friends got the news that Brooks had committed suicide to escape the burden of his freedom. It's a tragic story. The story of a man who is so used to being enslaved, so used to being an inmate, that once he, was, once he was finally free, he was completely unable to enjoy or use his freedom for anything that was good. And it can be like that for us in the gospel. The gospel is so overwhelming. It gives us so much freedom that we can misuse it or misunderstand it. We are so hardwired for sin, so naturally bent towards slavery and imprisonment that we don't really know what to do with our freedom. 
we as recovering sinners have, as we come to understand the joy and the, and the delight and the freedom that come from the gospel. And let me tell you, if your gospel doesn't include new joy and new freedom and new delight, I don't think you have found the gospel. Joy is the package. It comes with it. Delight in knowing and be united, being united to God. You cannot love him who you do not delight in. So there's joy that comes in the gospel. And it's possible for us to, to be intoxicated by this freedom so much that we can take this gospel freedom and actually use it to sin. Using our gospel freedom to sin. Our hearts can take the good benefits of the gospel and twist them and use them for selfish purposes. And so ironically and really quite tragically, we may find ourselves back in slavery and back in entangled in our selfishness all over again. But, but we know that's not right. We know that that doesn't really fit with the gospel. I mean, the gospel we've heard frees us from selfishness. It frees us from, from that bondage. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul is making this point. He says, brothers, it's for freedom that you've been set free. So, so don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. How is it that we can be crazy enough to twist our freedom into some new sort of slavery? But, but that's what we do in sin. Sin is always taking something good that God has made and twisting it and breaking it and transforming it, disfiguring it to something less than what God made it to be. We have two different passages I'd like to look at this morning. I could not decide. So we're going to look at two passages side by side. But before we do that, let me go ahead and give you the main idea from, this text, from these texts this morning. The main idea that I'm hoping that God will help us see by His Spirit is this. The gospel sets us free from loving ourselves. And that freedom is not so that we can wander aimlessly, but instead the gospel compels us to live for God and to live for others. The gospel sets us free from loving ourselves and then compels us to live for God and then live for others. You may want to keep your finger in Galatians chapter 5. We'll look at Galatians chapter 5 as well as 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I have them for us up here on the screen, so if you get dizzy flipping back and forth, but be sure to anchor what I'm saying. Find that for yourselves in these precious texts. Let's read first from Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us or controls us. Having concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
This is the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together and seek divine help. Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we come hungry and thirsty. So Father, I I pray that You would feed us. I pray that You would open our eyes to see beautiful things and delightful things in Your Word. Would You satisfy us in You so that we would have no need to seek sinful satisfaction elsewhere. I pray, Father, that my words would fall to the ground. They can blow away. They can be washed away and forgotten. Just let Your Word remain. Let us leave with it in our hearts, for we know that it will bear fruit just like the rain. We ask this in your name. Amen. I'd like to invite you this morning to consider with me how the gospel of freedom actually frees us from loving ourselves. How the gospel of freedom frees us from loving ourselves. The implications and applications for this are many. Your marriage will change when you stop loving yourself. Your parenting, your job, your relationships, everything will change when you stop loving yourself like you are a God. So let's see if we can trace this, trans, this progression together. I have, it, I have a progression here in five steps. The first step is this. The gospel frees us from all obligation. We can make no mistake about it. We've seen this for weeks and weeks. We've delighted to find out that the, that the gospel does in fact invite us into a freedom that is so incredible that it is perhaps even dangerous. This is the point that Paul's making in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Look here. You were called to freedom, brothers. Do you see? He says you've been called. If you are called in Christ, if you know Christ, you're free. You're called to a life of freedom. And we've talked about this in recent weeks, all the ways that the gospel breaks the chains of bondage that we are burdened by. The gospel is a divine and powerful chain breaker. The gospel frees us from the need to be good enough to try to make God happy with us by the way that we live. The gospel frees us from needing to behave in order to be loved by God. The gospel frees us from being enslaved to what others think and to the pleasures that come just in the body. The gospel frees us from needing to fear God, to fear being rejected by God because we have been accepted in Christ. Because of the gospel, you don't have to work anymore. The gospel is not news for workers. The gospel is news for resters. Those who can rest from killing themselves in trying to obey the law and still be good enough. Instead, you can rest in Christ. What I'm saying, church, is that you can fail. You can even sin. You can screw up. You can make major mistakes and still be positionally pleasing in the sight of God. If you are in Jesus, then you are totally and unconditionally accepted and approved by God, in spite of your sin. What incredible news this is for us, church, approved by God. You're free from the crushing obligation to keep the whole law because Jesus kept it for you. 
He has kept it on our behalf and applied its benefits to us. This is incredible news, and I will not tire, I pray, of proclaiming this and living this gospel. But I think it's a gospel that has a sense of danger to it. There's some danger here. Paul alludes to this when he says that there is a temptation that's built in. Freedom is a temptation. That's our second point this morning. You are free, yes, but Paul says be careful because your freedom can tempt you. Look down at verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Do you see that temptation there? Freedom, all freedom, freedom of all types has risks built into it. As a culture, we are experimenting with this. We pride ourselves as the nation of freedom, and yet we are seeing now people responding to the dangers of that freedom. The freedom of speech means that there's a danger that someone might bully you or say something mean or say something untrue. The freedom to drive means that someone might drive drunk or too fast or carelessly. All freedom is dangerous, and I think that includes gospel freedom. The gospel itself is not dangerous as if it were sinful or tricky. What happens is that we as sinners take this freedom and we mess it up. We, we twist it. As sinners, we are tempted to turn our freedom into an opportunity to gratify our own sinful desires. That's what sinners do, right? We, we take good things made by God and we twist them into something bad, even the gospel. But how? I mean, how, how is it that you could twist the gospel into something bad? Well, in short, I think that we are tempted to use the gospel for purely selfish purposes. Here's what I mean. So far, most of what we've talked about in the last 10 or 11 weeks or so is we've talked about the gospel in terms of mostly its private realities. Now, sure, wherever the gospel truly is, wherever a converted person truly is, there will be all sorts of fruit flowing out of their lives. You cannot be a genuine believer in Christ and not show some of the fruit of the Spirit. That's, just, that's how it works. It's, it's new life. But what we've done so far is we've considered these private realities and, and we can tend to overfocus on them. And what I mean by that is we may overemphasize and think about the gospel primarily in terms of how the gospel transforms me or how the gospel is how God forgives me or how God is making me new. Me, me, right? I'm free. I won't go to hell. I have this freedom in Christ, right? And that's good and that's true. The gospel is personal. And it transforms us in a personal way. But the gospel is more than that. This is why we don't worship by ourselves. It's why we worship corporately together. Because God is doing something much bigger than just changing me. The gospel is much bigger than me and God. The temptation, though, is to think just about the gospel in those terms. Me and God. Like it's just a private little reality with private benefits that I can enjoy. Let me, try to, let me try to give you an example of how this works. I think for probably more than 10 years or so, my wife and I have been in the habit of getting up early in the morning and trying to put ourselves in a position to hear God's voice as we read his word and then to have his ear as we pray, a time of personal, personal devotions. And over the years, 
God has changed us to where I think we're very dependent on that time of private fellowship and communion. And then we had kids. Two beautiful, two, right? Just two? She's still here? Just two kids, right? Two beautiful, precious kids. But they're not very sensitive to our schedules. They're not sensitive to our morning routine. Just the other day, I woke up, and it was early, and I woke up feeling spiritually and physically and just emotionally exhausted and depleted. And I just wanted to be with the Lord. I wanted to hear Him speak to me in His Word. I wanted to tell Him about my burdens, and I needed help because if I was going to keep going, I needed help. I spent about three minutes with the Lord, sat down at my usual place there in the kitchen, had all my cups of coffee lined up, right, one after another, so there's no, no, uh, no interruption. I opened up my Bible and spent time with the Lord. The sun wasn't up yet, and then all of a sudden I hear this pop, the door. I hear pitter-patter, pitter-patter walking down the hall, and I look up and I see that cute little curly fro with a diaper hanging down to the floor. It's impressive. Immediately in my heart, I, I was frustrated. Right? I, I remember thinking, no, God, I, I want to I be with you. I mean, is that bad? Like, I mean, come on, just but let, her, let her stay asleep, right? And I was missing it. Here God was working and preparing, giving me an opportunity to change. He was, he was giving me an opportunity to serve him and fellowship with him and his sufferings, <laughs> minor sufferings, to fellowship with him by serving my daughter. And you see, what happens, friends, is it's possible to make your Bible reading and make your devotions and make your Sunday school attendance and your worship all about you. We can make it, we can even make our Bible reading an idol. I mean, it's good to want God's grace. I commend to you private secret devotions. But God never gives us His grace to hoard. We're always to pass it along. God wanted me that morning to use the grace that I had enjoyed from previous hours with God and to give to my daughter in humble, selfless service and to fellowship with the Lord in that way. You see, grace is not like a pond. It's like a spring-fed river. We're not called to just hoard and store up all of His grace for ourselves. We're called to be conduits. We're called to be pipes, like, like rivers, drinking in His grace and then passing it along to someone else. Because God's grace, it's a stream. And there's plenty more where that came from. You're not going to find the bottom. You're not going to run out. God's not going to grow stingy. He's not going to stop giving you what you need in Christ. And so what happens is, is that we're so tempted to forget those around us and to take the easy way out and to think primarily in terms of my relationship with me and God and actually gratify the flesh. There's all sorts of ways we can do this. I, I gave a very sanitized example. There, there's all sorts of ways that we can use our Christian freedom to be selfish. I really think the most common is just good old-fashioned Christian laziness. We think, I told the first service, if you have sensitive toes, you might want to slide them back a little bit. They might get stepped on. We think, I don't have to share the gospel in order to be saved. 
So I won't do it. I don't have to ride around on a bike for two years and knock on doors and wear a white shirt and a helmet. I don't have to do that in order to be saved. So I won't ever knock on anybody's door. I don't have to give to the church in order to be saved, and you don't. So I'll just toss in a 20 and keep saving up for that vacation or that new house project. I mean, I should care about the poor, I know. And I guess I do, right? I should care about the poor, but, and that's good for you, but, but I don't have to, right? That'd be legalism. That'd be legalism. You see, we can use the freedom that comes from the gospel, the freedom that we have from not having to be crushed by the weight of the law to actually disregard God's law. This is why there are some people who come to church and don't serve in any capacity at all. They just come as consumers. They sit back and they watch and they do what consumers do. They complain about whatever. The chairs, the lights, the music, the Sunday school curriculum, whatever it is. Right? They sit back and watch and complain. They let other people serve them. They, they let other people take care of their kids. They let other people feed them the Bible. They let other people stack the chairs. They do, and, and then they leave, right? You see, the old adage is true. Most churches and most organizations have about 90% of the work being done by 10% of the people because it's so much more comfortable to just watch and gratify the flesh. But you see, the gospel, it, it, yes, it frees us from having to love our neighbor in order to be saved, but it does so in order that we can love our neighbor freely. Here's how this works. What happens is that, that we experience this incredible love and this incredible freedom in the gospel, and then we use that freedom to sit back and just love ourselves. We, we enjoy this amazing love of God in the gospel, and we just kind of prop up our feet and say, keep it coming, God, keep it coming, and not considering how we're called to give our lives away. But that's selfishness, which brings us to the third point. The gospel actually frees us from our selfishness. It frees us from our self-love. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul has, has just told the Galatian brothers and sisters, he says, don't use your freedom to serve yourself. Instead, in love, serve one another. I think we can see it even more clearly here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Read this passage with me. For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. Do you see how that works in this passage? The gospel frees us from only loving ourselves. And, I mean, and that's, that's really the essence of sin, when we love ourselves more than God and more than people. Right? The two great commandments, love God, love people. You do those things that is good religion, right? That is obedience to God. That's perfect obedience to God. So when we love ourselves more than God and when we love ourselves more than other people, all this goes wrong. But this is what the gospel frees us from. Paul's saying, look, right? You get it, right? He's saying, he's saying look at that word, we've concluded. What have we concluded? Well, that Christ has died for all and that all who trust in him have died in in our own sins. Christ has died for the sins of the world. This is the gospel. It is the ultimate act of selflessness. 
The cross of Jesus Christ is the least selfish display of love ever. There's no self-love on the cross. There's no comfort on the cross. Christ empties himself of all of his own desires and gives himself for the good of others. He did that for me. He did that for you. And when you conclude that with Paul, when you conclude that, when you come to see and understand and believe the gospel, when you come to that conclusion, man, that changes everything. This is why the gospel, this is why Christian conversion is more than just something that you say. It, it's reflected in a life that is changed. It changes everything. Now I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for him who died for me and rose on my behalf. That's what we see here in verse 15. That's actually why Jesus died. He died so that we would no longer live for ourselves. That's slavery. He died to break us from the slavery of selfishness but instead for him. Do you see how this works? When you really come to understand the gospel, as, as described and summarized in verse 14, that when you come to understand that Christ died for all and that we died to our sin in him, when we really come to consider that and understand that, the natural fruit is the death of selfishness. The natural love of self dies, and a love of God and for others is born. This is the dynamic of the gospel. When we see this love, when we see Christ's love, when we, when we get it into our hearts, when we realize, I should have been on the cross, that should have been me. When you come there, when you realize that, what, and, and you realize that Christ took your place, everything begins to change. Christ's love actually compels us. It, it pulls us like a magnet, like we, can't, like we can't help but love because we see what has been done on our behalf. If I've considered the gospel, if you've considered the gospel, then you've come to this conclusion that you don't need to live for self anymore. Now you're going to live for Christ. You cannot come to Christ and still live primarily for yourself. It's impossible. It's not repentance. Repentance is turning to Christ, away from sin. So the love of Christ actually compels us and controls us. You see, the gospel is not just an internal reality that happens in your heart. That's not the only thing. It's not just about you and God. It actually compels, or maybe we could use propels or explodes, ex pushes us to live differently. Inward gospel renewal will always transfer to external propulsion, like being shot out of a cannon, a change. Sure, I mean, God, God did not just set you free from sin in order for you to just live for yourself, right? I mean, sure, you can, you can have an awesome garden, and you can play video games, and you can build your little perfect fitness body, and then you can sit around and shoot the breeze at McDonald's or whatever your thing is. But he has set you free from loving yourself in order to do two things. To love God and love other people. To love God and love others. So let's see how that works. The fourth part in this progression is that the gospel frees us to love God's glory more than our own glory. Look how Paul describes this back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. He says that 
Those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for who? For Him, for the glory of God. Did you know that the glory of God is the whole point of the gospel? Not the glory of Nathan. It wasn't that Nathan was so precious and so valuable that Jesus just had to die for me. Yes, he loved me. Yes, he loves you, but there's something bigger than me and bigger than you. The gospel is about magnifying the glory of Christ. It's about showing the world what he is like. The glory of God is the whole purpose of the gospel, and it's the whole purpose of the created world. God made the world to display his greatness, to show everyone what he's like. Charlie just sang for us that, that when we see the stars and when we hear the rolling thunder, there's a rumbling in our heart. There must be something bigger than me, and Darwin is wrong. God must be magnificent. When we read the Bible and see the glory of Christ, we know that there's something more than ourselves. The world, God made the world even in its present broken form, even with earthquakes and cancer and hepatitis, God is still displaying to us what he's like in the created world. But even more than that, God shows us what he's like in the gospel. The gospel reveals what God is like, that he is both judge who is just and love who is tender. He's the God who thunders against sin and he's the God who hangs naked on a cross to pay for sin. He's both. The gospel displays the glory of God. And the glory of God, is, is, that's his mission. And guess what? If you're created by God, all of us, that's your mission too. Your mission is not to make money. It's not to be comfortable. It's not to be light. It's not to build a big house. It's not to be well thought of. Your mission is to, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, to do it all for the glory of God. That's why you were made. And you will not be happy seeking any other glory. That's why the, the, the pool of sin begins to crumble as you grow in Christ. It's because you begin to taste that God's better than this. I was made to glorify God. Now that you have come to see, dear brother and sister, now that you've come to see God's beauty and the love that he shows on the cross, everything that you do is to be about his glory, to show the world how great he is. You see, once, once you come to see what God's glory is like, why would you want to live for your own glory, right? I mean, my glory is so small, especially when I'm reading the law, <laughs> which, which tells me how unglorious I am and how sinful I am. No, instead, we now exist for seeing and knowing and enjoying the glory of God. Do you see how this fits with the gospel? As the law breaks you down, as it crumbles your pride, it elevates Christ. It shows you your need, but that need points you to the cross. And on the cross, we see the justice and the holiness and the purity and the love and the humility of Christ our Savior on display in such a way that it propels us to worship Him. Not self, but Him. The gospel paves the way to worship it makes us true worshipers of God. And once we've seen it, you just can't keep quiet. Perhaps an illustration would be helpful here. I'm not very familiar with the lucrative hobby of art collecting. I imagine that many of you are not as well. It's a game that's only played by the world's ultra-rich. 
So let me tell you about two of the top five most um, prosperous art collectors in the world. One is a pair of brothers named Ezra and David Nahamed. Their art collection, I can't even fathom this, their art collection's worth $3 billion. B with a billion with a B, right? They have 5,000 pieces of art, 300 of which are Picasso's. But here's the thing. These brothers are not even art lovers. They trade art in order to make a profit. So their collection, their 5,000-piece collection of the most beautiful art in the world is stored in a warehouse near the airport in Geneva. It's wrapped up in cloths and bags. No one can see it. It's stacked up. The light's not even on. Security guards are outside. They're not even looking. It's very different than Francois Penault, who's one of the other top five art collectors in the world. His collection is much smaller, $1.4 billion worth. He has 2,000 pieces, yet his love of art is very different. His dedication to art is that he loves art and he wants other people to love art. His goal, his goal in collecting art is to share his collection with, his, with the, the widest number of people possible. So he actually spends another part of his fortune to build and invest in museums and, and to fly the art around the world so that as many people as possible can find ways to see it and to enjoy it. You see, for those of us who know and possess Christ, we have to decide what type of art collector are we. How are you going to steward the glory of Christ? Are you going to hoard it all up for yourselves? Are you going to store it in a closet, in a warehouse, so no one can see it? Or are you going to set your life up like a museum that's built to display to the glory, the glory of God to the widest number of people possible? You see, Christ died for you. So you can tear down your shrine of mirrors and go build him a museum where all the world can see and enjoy the beauty of God. The gospel frees us to live for the glory of God, but it simultaneously frees us to live for the good of others. Which brings us to our final point this morning. The gospel frees us to love the good of others more than our own good. Back in Galatians 5.13, Paul was warning us not to use our gospel freedom wrongly. And his whole point, the point, the point of his argument is he's saying, he's saying, look, the gospel's freed you from having to obey the law, right? You're freed from the obligation of obeying the law to enjoy God's favor. Right? And this is great news. God does not treat us solely based on how we treat other people. If he did, there would be no rain. There'd be, there'd be famine and drought. There'd be none of it. We don't deserve any of it. God doesn't treat us based on how we treat other people or how well we fulfill the law, how much we love him. But now that we realize because of Jesus, we don't have to obey and don't have to love God in order for him to love us. Now that we don't have to love people in order for him to love us, guess what happens? We're actually freed up to do those things. We're free to genuinely love God and genuinely love people. That's what Paul says. You are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love do what? Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Do you see the put off, put on dynamic in this passage? Put off selfishness, put on love. Serving your neighbor. Once you come to understand the gospel, once you come to see how deeply loved you are by God in Jesus, you'll find you don't even need the love of other people because you're secure. In fact, you no longer need to use the people that you love to get love. Instead, you can actually use love to get other people to Christ. Once your heart considers the gospel, you will find it set ablaze for the glory of God. Once you discover a love for the glory of God, you will in turn naturally want to help other people see and love and savor the the glory of God. That's how praise works, right? Do you you realize this is the reason sports merchandise exists? If you love UT football, I hear there's some of you who do, you wear UT hats and UT shirts because you want other people to know about your love for UT football and how great it is, I'm told, right? That, that you, want other, you love it, so you want other people to like it too. I like my team, and I want other people to like my team because I'm convinced that my team is great. That's, that's, how, that's how praise works. When we love something, we want other people to love it with us. This is why it's boring to go to the movies by yourself. This is why it'd be so weird to watch the Super Bowl with one person in attendance, because we enjoy it together. Our love and joy in a thing is enhanced when we enjoy it with other people. And so that's what happens in love. We, we are seeking out opportunities. Once we are inflamed with love for God, we are looking for opportunities to help other people love Him and know Him. We look to serve people in evangelism and discipleship and in acts of service. We don't have time to go through all this together. This is how you will work this sermon out on Tuesday afternoons at 1 o'clock, looking for ways to help other people love God. But these are all opportunities to put Christ on display. I mean, did you realize that you can display the love of the cross in the kitchen and in the bedroom and in the nursery and in the office and on the road, not, not by wearing a crucifix on your neck, but in how you love and in how you speak. Every time that we love our neighbors like ourselves, we're displaying Jesus. We're choosing to live in the way Jesus lived and died. To die to self like he did on the cross and to put the interests of someone else, maybe even someone else we don't like that much, or isn't that lovable, to put them above our own. You see, loving your neighbor is God's blueprint for how to build a museum for his glory. That's the blueprint. Let your light shine before men that they will see your good deeds and then do what? Praise and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's how you put the display of Christ's glory before the world by loving like he did. The gospel sets us free from loving ourselves, and it frees us up and compels us to live for God and live for others. Perhaps I could close this morning with an illustration. You remember our gospel grid, the cross chart, which is a way to illustrate that the more you come to understand and appreciate what Christ has done on the cross, the more he grows in your view. 
the more love, the more worship, the more joy, the more desire for obedience you'll find in your heart. So as your view of Jesus gets bigger, your view of the cross gets bigger. And so let's say that our appreciation for the cross is like a cup of water. Okay? On some level, you need water to live. We all need water to live, right? So drink deeply from the springs of God. You need water to live. You need water to sustain your own life. But the more that you come to see the beauty of God in Christ, the more you come to see the love that he has given to you, your glass gets fuller and fuller and fuller. The bigger the cross is to you, the more water you have in your glass. And so what happens? You got some leftover. You got plenty to give to other people. When you tap into the fountain, you have more water than you need. And so you can give it away. That's how this works. As you see Christ in the gospel, as you see his love for you, you will be compelled or propelled out to love other people in meaningful, tangible ways. And then Christ will be glorified. And we all win. Let's pray.